Good morning, church. We're going to be taking a couple weeks off of our series of the book of John to turn to a really, really important matter for any church, a matter of prayer. If you find a church that's bearing fruit, you'll find a church that is in pursuit of God in prayer. And to that end, we're going to spend the week of October 13th through the 17th having a series of meetings in the evening set aside for us to pray and fast together. Um, that, I know that's a big block of time. That's a, a big block of our church's calendar. And that's intentional. That's because the leadership of, uh, of College Park Castleton really believes if, if we're to remain a healthy, fruitful church over the long term, then we must continue praying. And we feel that we must do this together. I would invite you to make it to as many of those nights as you possibly can. Um, uh, even if you're unable to make it to more than one of the nights or any at all, please join us in prayer and fasting. We'll be praying about a lot of really important things about our life together as a church and about our mission to reach the community we're in for Jesus. Well, to that end, the next two Sundays, we will have our focus on the topics of prayer this Sunday and next Sunday on fasting. And, and what better way to start a sermon on prayer than by going to the Lord in prayer together. So if you join me briefly in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we don't need much convincing that so much of the wrong feels so long in this world. So many pains and sorrows and injustices feel as if they go on forever and there's no hope in sight. We need your help to be reminded that we are to persist in our prayers to you, that justice will surely come. That we need to simply wait in prayer for you until it does. Help us to receive this word with hearts wide open, with faith befitting of you, our beloved Savior. We pray in your mighty name. Amen. One of my first pastoral assignments, dear sister walked into my office. I had been prepared. I knew this was going to be a hard conversation. Her first words to me were, Pastor, I don't know that there is anything you can do except to pray for me. She went on to lay out what I had already largely heard, a grave injustice that had occurred in her family. She had been married to a professing Christian man. They had had children together. This sweet sister, years into their marriage, abruptly had her husband get up and say, I want a divorce. As if that wasn't bad enough, a divorce without grounds, he then proceeded to prolong the agony by positioning himself in just the right way. Oh, he would use the money that he would support the family with as leverage in order to get his way. He would make sure that whenever she had an opportunity for a job, he would use his influence in the community to shut that down. And he would do it all in just such a calculated way that it was just outside the long arm of the law. It had been going on for years by the time I had that meeting. The church had tried to intervene. They had rallied around her. They had provided meals. They had prayed with her. They had cried with her. They had even gotten her legal counsel. Six years in, and it wasn't getting any better. And here I was. What was I going to do? It's not just personal tragedy. 
personal hurts. It shows us that there is so much wrong in this world that goes on for so long. Think about what happens in the name of Christ and the missions that are out across the world and the persecution and the injustice of what happens. Uh, even uh, this last trip, I got to take to Thailand to visit with the Foltzes. You know, we were there for this unveiling of this beautiful new uh, school, uh, building for missionary kids. But why was that building needed? Well, it was because their previous building when the school was flourishing and they had this multi-million dollar asset, well, somebody paid off the right person and some business guy managed to seize control of that asset, that building, with no recourse. What do you do when the kingdom of Christ seems to be hindered by an injustice? Or what about at the societal level? Even this week, we saw the end of a murder trial. A police officer went into the wrong apartment, shot a man in his own home. There's a measure of justice, a guilty verdict. There's even a sweet sort of forgiveness and a reconciliation. It's an amazing story. And yet, it's not satisfying at the deepest level, is it? That man's not coming back. What is a disciple to do when it's so obvious that the world is full of pain and sorrow and injustice, and there seems to be no end in sight. Jesus' answer is that we are to pray. We are to pray until justice comes from our God. And we are to remember it surely will come. He taught a parable with this basic message, that we are to persist in our prayers for justice in a world that seems to lack it so acutely. And this morning, we need to hear it as much as those original disciples needed it. We'll see this from Jesus in four sections as we move through these verses. First, we'll see the parable of persistence in verses 1 through 5, the, the actual story that Jesus tells to tell his disciples they are to persist in their prayers for justice. But as is so often the case with Jesus and his parables, there's, there's layers beneath the main point, and those are really important for us to hear today. There are three lessons that we will receive. The, the second section, lesson one, is that we must, as disciples, must pray with the expectation of being heard by the just judge. We will pray with expectation of being heard by the just judge. That's verses six through beginning of seven. The second lesson is that we must pray with endurance for a swift answer, that there's a perseverance needed, that we must pray with endurance for a swift answer. And then at the end of verse eight, our third lesson is that we will need to pray with urgency to stay alert. Pray with urgency to stay alert. In all this, we will be reminded that even though the world lacks justice, our God does not. So we must pray until justice comes to this world. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5. A parable of persistence. Jesus is a master teacher, and so he uses stories to great effect. We often call them parables. They're really stories with intention behind them. One main point, usually, that is the, the main thing that Jesus is teaching. In this case, Luke records for us what that main point is right there in verse 1. 
If this were showing up on Facebook or Twitter, it would have spoiler tags around it. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Always to pray and not lose heart. So this then is a story that Jesus tells that's intended to keep his disciples from giving up in their prayers. And yet there's much more to it than that as we unpack these lessons that come after the parable we will see. First, let's look at the parable itself. It's a tight story with masterfully constructed, just two characters, just four verses. And yet it, it so clearly gets across this truth that Jesus is driving at. First, let's look at the character of the judge, the rotten, uncaring judge in verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's a way of saying that this is a judge that really didn't care what anyone thought of him. As a result, you could not sway this judge. You couldn't get leverage on him. You couldn't appeal to his emotions or his good character. Later on, Jesus will call him an unrighteous judge, which makes it even worse. Not only is he uncaring and unmoving, he's actually bent the wrong direction. But here's the surprising thing. The second character, this good-for-nothing, unmoving judge, meets the unstoppable widow in verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, saying that a widow is uh, unstoppable would have been a, a bit of a contradiction of terms back in the ancient East. Back then, widows were about the most marginalized people in society. Uh, the Old Testament had laws particularly protecting widows because of this. In Jesus' day, this was still the case. If uh, a widow was not necessarily uh, an old woman either, since so many people married, even as early as like 13 or 14 years old, uh, many widows would have been young women. And, and yet their course in life was thought to be set. A widow was marginalized from the time her, her husband died forward. Uh, she might, you might think she would inherit her husband's money, but that wasn't the case. That money would go back to the husband's family. Um, should she desire to go back to the husband's family, they would actually have to pay back the dowry that her family gave them. So they were disincentivized from taking care of her. So you might think, well, she'll just go back to her original family. Well, that's a problem too. If she did that, she would live her days out in shame. She would be something like a servant that would live off in the corner, someone to be seen but not heard. A widow was about as powerless as they came in that day. They were often victimized. They had no societal capital, no chips to cash in for the sake of their well-being. And yet, did you notice the shock here? This widow has a plucky streak to her. She says, uh, it says that, he, that she came and she kept coming to him. There's a, that's a, an ongoing action. Day after day, she's doing this. And, and what is she doing? She's saying to this rotten, good-for-nothing, immovable judge, give me justice against my adversary. So you have to ask, what is going to give in this situation? You have an immovable judge, an unstoppable widow. Well, as it turns out, here's the shock of the story. 
the judge is the one who moves. In verse 4 and 5, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, and then we get a little internal monologue from the judge. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. He, he does a little internal self, self-interested calculation. He says, what is going to turn out better for me? Is she going to give up first or am I going to wear down first? We're not told exactly how this has been going down. Maybe it was on a street corner Jesus had in mind. Maybe she was showing up at his house. Regardless, he comes to the conclusion that it's going to cause more pain for him to continue just ignoring her than to give her what she wants and go away. That, that phrase there at the end, she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That's very colorful in Greek. The, the metaphor that's used is literally someone getting a black eye. It's like he, he's th- saying to himself, I'm going to be so emotionally worn down. You'll be able to see it on my face like a shiner if I let her keep this up. So in the, the one time in his career, this good-for-nothing, immoral, immovable judge, he does justice just to get this widow off his back. Now, if that's all we had, you might be forgiven for thinking this is a parable about how you should pester God into giving you what you want. You want something from God? Well, just keep on praying and praying and praying. Eventually, God will get sick of you and give you what he wants. Well, that, that's not quite what we're supposed to draw from this passage, even as it does have an application to persistence, as we'll see. There is a depth that Jesus unpacks in the lesson that he draws from this parable. Three lessons, actually. And that's what we'll turn our attention to next. Lesson number one. Disciples of Jesus are to pray with the expectation of the just judge. They are to pray because they live in a world that is unjust, but they are praying to a God who is not. Look how Jesus says it in verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It would be a mistake to think that Jesus is here directly comparing this good-for-nothing, immovable judge to God, the perfect righteous, always correct judge of all things. Now, Jesus is not here doing a a direct comparison. He is, in fact, doing a contrast. He's using a tool of going from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that, you, you know this judge, you'll admit that this judge is not someone you should expect much from. This judge almost never gets it right. And yet, even... Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Even this good-for-nothing judge, in this scenario, he will give justice. How much more would the perfect judge of the whole world, how much more would he give justice to his people when they cry to him in the midst of their pain? Jesus is here contrasting this rotten judge with the character of, of the judge of all things, God himself. 
Now, it needs to be noted that the only way that we know of justice is by God's character. You see, justice is not just something out there. It's, a, it's not like a standard that God conforms himself to. No, we know of justice because we live in the world that a just God created. It is a reflection of his perfection and his virtue. When Abraham in Genesis 18 refers to God, he is right to say, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. It's fitting with his character. A.W. Tozer put this so succinctly. He said this, just when used of God is a name we give to the way God is. Nothing more. When God acts justly, he is simply acting like himself in every situation. In other words, we would not know what justice is if God had not revealed himself, even in the creation that he's made and the laws he has given to this creation. Justice is things being in line with the God that created them. When things are unjust, is when they are out of line with him. Now, Jesus intends for us praying to this just God to be an encouragement for us to pray. You see, we don't need to leverage God. We don't need to convince him. We don't need to store up enough merit by getting on our knees enough to, to get him to do what we need to manipulate him in some way. No, God is the highest of all courts of appeal. And every judgment of his is perfectly just. When we notice injustice in this world, we can be confident that God is even more upset about it than we are. And that's why we can be confident that our prayers are welcomed when we ask him to bring justice to this world. Now, even as we are to have this expectation of the just judge hearing our prayer, it leaves a pretty important question. When? When can we expect an answer? Well, that's what we come to in verse 7. Second half of verse 7, Jesus says, Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Now, it must be noted, these are some of the harder verses in the Bible, both to translate and to interpret. When I was going through the, my research for this uh, sermon, I, I found like something like 13 different translations for that first phrase. Second one has at least three or four different ones also. Even if you get in the realm of what you're pretty sure the words mean, how you interpret it and connect it to the rest of the Bible, still an open question. Very often when this is the case, a useful thing to do is to look back at the context surrounding a difficult verse. So in this case, I think it would really help if we just back up a little bit in our Bibles and read back to Luke 17 and verse 20. If you back up, you'll see that Jesus has been talking to his disciples and he's been putting down two poles that all Christians need to live in tension between. Two poles that really help us to make sense of what it is he's saying in chapter 18. The first pole is that 
they are living in the here and now kingdom. Look at verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, they were likely expecting Jesus to usher in some sort of political or military kingdom of God. To this, Jesus tells them, it's not going to be like that. In fact, in a sense, the kingdom of God is already here in the midst of you. It's where all Christians live from this side of the cross forward. There, there is a, an immediacy to this kingdom of God. That's one side of the pole. But then there's another side of the pole that he teases out just a little further down. And verses 22 and 30. Verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. See, there's days of the Son of Man and there's a weight involved. You're not going to see it. He starts teasing out what this, his return to earth is going to look like. In verse 30, he circles back to this forward-looking reality. Verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, in case you think I'm making this up, look down with me at chapter 18, verse 8, the very end of our passage, which we'll get to in a second. Just want to draw your attention to this. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see the two poles? In one sense, the, you're living in the kingdom of God right now. And in the other sense, the, the kingdom of God will fully be here on the day, the great day, the day of the Son of Man, when Jesus returns and makes all the wrong things right in this world. With you, those two poles up, that verse, in verse 7, and in the beginning of verse 8, I think it makes a lot more sense. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Jesus is not here teaching that God will every time immediately answer every one of the Christian's prayers. No, he is speaking of swiftness, not immediacy. He is speaking of how God answers prayers in the, the sweep of everything God is doing in history with the balance of eternity on one side and all the time up to the cross on the other side. And Jesus is saying, if you are a disciple that is praying for justice, you will see God answer your prayers either right now or on the final day of justice when Jesus returns. Now, I, I think we know this pretty well as Christians living out our lives in this world, we know this reality that God answers prayers both with an affirmative yes right now and at times he answers our prayers for justice with a yes on judgment day. I was uh, privileged to watch a group of students try and get an evangelism club started in a public school. They were super excited about it, only one problem. A school administrator started to, decided to get in the way. He uh, used some rules. Quite frankly, he was just being unfair about the way he was using the rules. He was nervous about what might happen if he allowed this club to start. I remember having a meeting with the students and us praying. 
praying, God, we, we feel like you're leading these students to do this. This doesn't seem fair. It seems unjust. Would you change the guy's heart? Would you just let him look favorably upon this club? And you know, within a week, it happened. God changed his mind. One day, he was dead set against it. The next day, okay, let's do it. And it was such joy as the, the students knew God had answered their prayer, even as they had been so faithful in pushing the issue. There was a, another dear sister that I watched. It wasn't an immediate answer to prayer, but it was swift. She had to wait years in her case. She got saved out of a Jewish household. And as is often the case, she paid a high price relationally with her family. Her dad basically disowned her. He refused to call her his daughter. He was just wouldn't communicate with her at all. She, she would come to our small groups and she'd be crying and she would say, this is so, so hard, so unfair. Would you just pray for me? And you know, after a few years, what happened? Her, her father had a heart attack. And as his physical heart broke, his relational and spiritual heart softened. And he was reunited with his daughter and their relationship found a measure of peace. And we, there was joy because we had prayed that God would change this injustice. When you see that happening in your life, you know God is a God that is involved in this world, that he is answering the prayers of his people, and it unleashes a level of joy that you did not have before. And yet if you lived as a Christian for any length of time, you know they don't all go that way, do they? Sometimes the injustice, the hurt, the pain, the wrong, it goes on and on for so, so long. You know, even the great victory of William Wilberforce and his role in bringing about the abolition of the slave trade, you know, he really, he poured his entire life out for this cause. And it was only... After his prime was gone, he was basically on his deathbed that he saw even a small measure of victory. And it wasn't until after he was gone that the whole thing was finally abolished. He didn't live to see that prayer fully answered. Or, or what about the Cambodian Christians who suffered under the Khmer Rouge? 90% of them wiped out. The vast majority of them never lived to see justice brought to this earth. And in fact, even the surviving ones today, only one official has ever been brought before a court of some sort and convicted for their mass murder. As a Christian, we know there are times where our pleas for justice won't be answered in a time that we will live to see it but we must never live under the illusion that they won't be answered because of the reality of judgment day. See, we have this motivation that keeps us going when life just seems to keep giving us one unfair situation after another. We know no one really gets away with anything, that there is a final accounting a final meeting with the just judge of the universe and no one will slip one by him. We also know that our joy and the duration of our joy will far outweigh the weight as we plead 
to God for justice and mercy. Whether it's 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years or a lifetime that we pray to God for, will it really seem like we waited that long once you're 10,000 years into eternity? Will it really seem like God dealt you an unfair hand when you have worshipped him face to face and seen his perfect justice across the whole earth for 100,000 years? So, my dear brothers and sisters, don't lose heart in your prayers. Don't give up when the wait is long, even when it's oh, oh, so wrong. The just judge hears you. That leaves uh, another important question for us. Why does he make us wait? I mean, if he both feels the injustice as much as we do and more, if he's most able to act, why doesn't he just fix it all at once? Well, that's the third and final lesson that Jesus gives us. It's actually for our good. Lesson number three We are to pray with urgency to stay alert. Pray with urgency to stay alert. The last half of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here, undoubtedly, Jesus has drawn their attention to that final day. And he asks a question in a way that it's a bit of a warning and a challenge. What will Jesus find When he returns to earth, what will he find his church doing? What will he find Christians doing? Will he find them in a spiritual stupor, living for themselves? Or will he find faithful servants, alert and ready to serve their master? I don't know what your strategy is for staying alert when you're driving one of those long haul drives. Maybe it's snacking on M&Ms along the way or blasting screamo music or rolling down the windows or talking to your passenger next door. Or, uh, maybe slapping yourself. I've gotten that desperate before. Um, and we all, have really, we all have strategies for how to keep ourselves alert behind the wheel because the consequences are so high if you don't, right? You can't afford to get drowsy when you're hurtling along at 70 miles an hour. Jesus here sounds a note of alarm. You must be alert when the Son of Man arrives. How is it that you stay alert? Well, the answer is that you pray. You pray and you don't give up praying. You pray when there's nothing else to do. You pray when it seems as if there's no hope. You pray when it's so wrong. You pray when you've been praying for oh so long. You pray. And in your praying, you're not convincing God. You're not changing his mind, but you're doing something, something within your own heart that God intends for you to do. You are reminding yourself that your God cares so much about justice in this world, and one day that justice will be seen. As we persist in prayer for justice, we keep ourselves spiritually alert, spiritually vital, We remain ready and waiting for Jesus' return to this earth. And this means if we fail to be prayerful, we will quickly fail to be fruitful, fail to be faithful. We will quickly lose our hearts 
fire for Jesus. Oh, this is certainly true for us as individuals. The, the fastest way for you to lose your desire to live for Jesus is just stop praying. It's also true for churches. A church that bears, more, bears much fruit is a church that never loses this pursuit. If you find a church that stops praying, it won't be long before you find a church that is spiritually dead. That's one of the reasons why it's so important that we carve out to pray together as a church here at Castleton, uh, College Park Castleton. Uh, you know, our prayer meetings we have once a month, even the congregational prayers we do each Sunday, like Eric led us in. I mean, it, it may feel like those are long prayers that we, we have, but it's intentional. It's because we, we know it's important for us to keep this in front of us if we're to remain spiritually alert and ready for the day that Jesus arrives. It's one of the reasons why this week of prayer and fasting is such a big deal. Uh, let me just say, if you at all can make time to be here for this. Do it. It will be worth your time. I guarantee it. If we as a church lose our focus on prayer, it won't be long before we lose our fruit-bearing days and we enter a spiritual slumber. Realize also how important it is for us as individuals to live this out. You know, if you're a, a student, can I suggest to you, if you've never had someone teach you how to pray, find someone who's been a Christian that you know to be a mature Christian that you would, you know, one day I want to follow Jesus like that person does. And we just go and ask them, would you teach me how to pray? I think you'll be shocked at how helpful that time would be, even if it's just for a few weeks. There are some lessons about persevering in prayer that can only be learned over a length of time. And if you've been a Christian for a short length of time, if you're a student, comparatively, it has been a short length of time. Ask them, and you'll be amazed what you can learn from people who have done this well and have learned how to keep that fire for Jesus going by staying prayerful. Let me just also say that I think one of the ways that we need to remain with our foot on the gas in this area is to keep reminding ourselves of how we know for sure that God's justice will come to this world. And that's really the gospel itself. If there was any doubt whether God cared about sin, if there's any doubt whether God was going to do anything about injustice, that doubt evaporated on that day where Jesus died on the cross. God showed through his willingness to send his own son to die on behalf of guilty sinners. Those who had committed an injustice against the God who made them, God proved once and for all that he cares about justice in this world. When we start losing our attention to prayer, when we don't feel the urgency we once did, we need to remind ourselves of what the cross says, how it shows us how much our God cares about justice in his world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, there's been a lot of talk of justice this morning, and I don't know exactly where you're coming from about that word. Um, I do know that if you look at your own life, 
If someone has ever done something truly evil to you, let me first just say, I'm sorry that that happened, whatever it is. But if you would think about how your heart responded to being harmed in that way, I think it would reveal to you the need for the type of justice that I'm talking about. If you'd make it personal enough and someone really did something harmful and evil to you, all of us deep down know that injustice is a problem, that when something is wrong, it needs to be corrected. But I wonder, friend, have you ever thought of what happens if that gets applied on the flip side to you in your life? It's easy to feel as if justice needs to be done when someone has harmed you. But what about all the things you have done to others? What about the times where you've lied? Or the times where you've been selfish? Or the times where you have completely ignored the God who made you and, and tried to live as if you made yourself? See, the good news that God would bring justice to this world is actually horrible news, the worst of all news to anyone that tries to stand before this God on their own merit. But the good news is that you can find shelter from the justice of God brought to bear against sin, what we would call wrath. You can find forgiveness from this God if you would believe this Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If that was the case, friend, you would be declared innocent before God. God would declare you justified. Justice had, has been done by Jesus dying on the cross. The question is, will you stand covered by his sacrifice or will you stand before a holy God on your own? Jesus warns us, we must continue to look for the justice of God to come. We must know it will come swiftly for our God is perfect and holy. His very character is justice itself. And that means none of us should be caught unaware on the day when judgment day comes. So Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters, hang in there. Hang in there when life is so, so hard. Hang in there when everything feels so wrong and you know it's not right, it's unjust. Hang in there and remember, you're to pray. Pray until justice comes and it surely will from your God. I told you about that dear sister, my first year as a pastor. Over the six years that I was one of her pastors, I can't say that much changed. The situation certainly didn't change. Her husband was just as effective at inflicting misery at the end of those six years as he was at the beginning. In terms of her life, it was in even more shambles than it was when I arrived. He had been very effective at destroying her from the outside. And yet, while her situation hadn't changed, she had. Through all the pain and injustice, she had actually grown softer, more joyful, more trusting of the God that she was entrusting even this injustice to. And you know, in my time praying with her, I have to tell you, I changed too. As a pastor, I think the Lord very intentionally put that assignment in front of me. 
So I would learn this hard, long lesson that we must pray until justice comes, even if it doesn't come until the day Jesus comes back. So my dear brothers and sisters, I don't know what burden you particularly come here with today, but I do know this. You are not to lose heart. You are to pray. You are to pray when there's nothing else to do and you are to pray when there's no other hope. You are to pray knowing justice will come from your God and he will bring it swiftly. Let's pray.